Welcome to the Enterprise GTM Podcast, hosted by Tim Zonka and Vidya Raman. Each episode takes a deep dive into how to successfully maneuver the unique dynamics of enterprise go-to-market while candidly discussing successful approaches, pitfalls, and failures alike. Our guests are seasoned company founders, GTM execs, technology buyers, and end users. Please note that the views expressed by individuals in these podcasts are not to be treated as investment advice. They are also not representing the views of their employers, current or previous. Welcome to this episode of the Enterprise GTM Podcast. I'm Tim Zonka, and along with my friend Vidya Raman, we're delighted to welcome you to a very special conversation with some very special people. We have here Tamar, who's VP of Engineering at Box, Saurabh, who's VP of Engineering at Unifor, and Mandar, who's the Director of Machine Learning at DoorDash. With the release of ChatGPT, AI has caught everyone's attention, and we're seeing it in more and more consumer and enterprise products. As leaders in the field of AI who've been working with AI before it became all the rage, you're the best minds to share the advice to founders who are building products using AI. So first of all, we welcome you. Thanks for joining us. And then second of all, before we jump in, could each of you introduce yourself and your role in each of your companies? Uh, I'd love to start with you, Saurabh. Sure. Name is Saurabh. I am the head of technology, vice president of engineering for Unifor, and we are in the conversational AI space. Great. Tamara, what about you? Hey, Tim and Vidya. Thanks for having me today. My name is Tamara Burkafici. I run the core platform team at Box. So basically a lot of nice, fun distributed systems challenges, new AI challenges, of course, and basically underpinning all of the content platform that we provide through the Box product. I've been at Box for many, many years and excited to talk AI today. Great. Welcome. Mandar? Hey, Tim and Vidya. Thank you very much for having me here. I am the Director of Machine Learning for Ads at DoorDash, in that I lead the entire machine learning that powers our ads and promotions at DoorDash. And I've been with DoorDash for a little more than a year and have been working in this area for the past 15 years. So I've seen the transition of things that I started working on that became traditional models. So we started working on tree-based models that became traditional models. Now in the second phase where the deep neural models are becoming traditional models and we're looking at Gen AI. So, so happy to come and, and chat with you guys. Great. Well, welcome to all of you. Saurabh, I'd love to start with you first. You know, we'll get into some models and techniques around what you've used and some challenges to overcome them. But maybe start out with, take us under the hood of how you build Emotion AI. Yeah, you know, Emotion AI is, is a little bit of a precipitate term. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's often used and often misunderstood. And the reason for that was predominantly, if you look at the market, Emotion AI was constantly related to text. So you can do sentiment analysis, engagement analysis using text. And those are usually the models that are simple machine learning models, even some CNNs that exist in that, in that regard. What is unique about the Emotion AI that we built is that it is what we call a multimodal AI model, multimodality. So we look at facial expressions so like just in this meeting, we will essentially take the video and I can explain how. So the facial experience, you know, there's a saying that almost 75% of the communication is actually nonverbal. So it's not just what I'm saying. It's the expression of other people who are in the room when you are saying. 
So the capability is called reading the room. So computer vision for facial expressions. Then we use some interesting neural networks for tone. So we convert tone into a spectrogram and then do spectrogram analysis for arousal and balance of emotion and the tone. And then, of course, the words that you're saying. And then we have a proprietary and patented fusion model, which will take all these three signals and merge that. And then essentially, there is a simpler version of the read, which is positive, negative, neutral on the emotion side, high, medium, and low on the engagement side. But it does far more than that, like anger, disgust, you know, the Ekman's psychology Mm. model. So it does based on Ekman's model, the emotion analysis. And there are some very interesting techniques here, like we measure empathy, we measure hesitation, we measure nervousness, we measure presence, how you project on camera and how you, you know, it's another word for authority or charisma. So there is a lot of AI behind very detailed multimodal analysis of sentiment in various forms. Hope that makes sense, though. Yeah, it does. And you mentioned, for example, computer vision models. So I don't know if it's that or if I'm just drawn to that because that sounds fascinating. But what were some of the key challenges that you had to overcome, either with those models or some of the other ones that that you ended up incorporating? Good question. And the way I'll describe the challenges, I'll sort of explain the technology behind the scenes too. So Look, what happens is for computer vision, when you're doing expression or sentiment analysis, you have to measure facial landmarks and you have to compare the landmarks in time to see what, like if I laugh, my cheeks will go up. If I frown, my lips will go down, etc. Right. So different things. Now I'm wearing glasses for engagement. We measure the depth of eye from the camera and then we measure, you know, whether your retina is actually looking at camera or looking away. We measure what is called pitch, roll, and yaw, which is, you know, imagine an axis in your head. And then, you know, your head movement and so on, you know, all of those are measured. So to measure this, the fundamental challenge initially is at what frequency do you have to measure to get an accurate result? So we measure video at 124th of a second. So if our technology was running behind the screens, there will be 24 frames a second of video which is just think of as images of series of images that will be created behind the scenes that are then sent into a series of neural networks that will analyze those images. So that's what's happening on the computer vision side. Tone, we do about eight frames a second. And words, we do it at utterance level, right? You know, whenever we detect a pause, then those many words go through the models. So one of the biggest challenges was breaking them apart in this form and then stitching everything back together in a linear fashion to be able to make sense out of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the fusion model that I talked about, you can have a situation where my expression is very animated, but I am talking in a very normal tone. I may appear angry, but I may be making a joke. So there are challenges around how you really want to use AI to distill the real signal of emotion out of multiple modalities. That's one challenge. And the other one is just the sheer volume of data that we have to collect, that we have to run through our neural networks to be able to do just computer vision right or just tonal right or just text right is also humongous. So let's say a one-hour meeting with five people, we collect about 1.2 million rows with about 200 columns if you want to look at the data in that mode. That much data is captured to be able to do a sentiment analysis. So one of the biggest challenges was just the sheer scale of this, the cost of doing this, 
making it possible for it to have high ROI and just like splitting up these 24 frames a second, eight frames a second into multiple compute units and then stitching back everything together in a linear fashion. That took us about six, seven months to engineer. Quite an incredible engineering problem here. Are you also doing real-time inferencing, Saurabh, yeah. based on all of so yes. this? One, yeah, so if you were in a Zoom call, there is a real-time application that will start on the right-hand side. And in real time, it's actually going to give you the sentiment and engagement read of all participants. Imagine, see, even now we are five people. We can see each other and we can probably read the room a little bit ourselves. But let's say we were doing a presentation. Now everyone is small. Two participants you cannot even see. So now reading the room becomes more difficult. So, yeah, there is a real-time application. So, you know, the quote I made is on our real-time application, we have actually broken the speed of light, the way it is engineered, because we are able to process all of that within a second. Wow, that is something I have to think about and process, not at the speed of light, obviously. One more question, Vidya, and then I'll let you get a few in. Saurabh, I'd love to know, as you were doing this work, what are some of the biggest gaps or maybe like wish list of tools you had for making it easier to build and manage this sort of set of capabilities? Right. So when we started building it in 2021, so if I consider, you know, our pipelines, we use a combination of uh, machine net and mobile nets from the neural network side. We use some YOLO fives. So sort of a disparity of tools depending or a disparity of model depending on what it is supposed to do. So let's just consider computer vision, for example, right? So first thing is collecting the video. So normally you have five faces in a frame. We have to then slide out each tile. So we have to chop off each tile. Then we have to identify the face in that. Then we have to run the landmark model, apply the landmark model into that, and then measure the sentiment, right? So you have to run a series of neural networks for that. So... My wish list in 2021 was that I wish there was a way that all the neural networks that we were running could run on the same runtime. But we ended up with a myriad of runtimes, like some was on an X, some was TensorRT, some was TF1, some were just pure Python models. And it took us about a year before we could find good equivalence in places where now we have standardized on TensorRT as a runtime with Triton on the Triton inferencing server. So I wish that I didn't have to do that re-engineering work where you could find a good runtime, a standardized runtime of the models back then. But these things are constantly evolving. And you have to sort of like stay up on that and make sure that you can get the best outage. So that was definitely one area. The other one was, and then, you know, you work on a crawl, walk, run approach, right? So you're trying to get time to market and you're trying to build an MVP. So we built whatever we had to build to get the basic functionality working and then started the optimization cycles. Another one was that we used Microsoft FER Plus dataset, which is about 1 million, 1.2 million images of people for verifying our sentiment model. The problem is that that dataset is, want to say, three to four years old. And... It doesn't have the right diversity mix. So we started to notice that our models were somewhat racially biased, somewhat gender biased, like we would get a higher accuracy with male than we would get with female, or we would get a higher accuracy without glasses than with glasses, or you know, dark skin in a dark background versus light skin. So we went through a lot of iterations to improve all those and then be able to create a balanced data set 
with various languages, various ethnicities, various traditions and customs. We have created, like if I try to explain to you how we have done that, you'll see the complexity of that. So for example, we sell heavily into sales. So one of the ways we've done it is we will find, say, 10 target companies, let's say Rubrik, Snowflake, and DoorDash are companies where we think we can sell. Then somebody in my team will sit down and write a set of value proposition that Rubrik is selling to their customers because we obviously can't get Rubrik's meetings. So we try to create a script of a meeting that a Rubrik salesperson is using with their customer or Snowflake is using with their customers. And then we hire actors who act these scripted meetings with given emotion changes, and we have to hire a diverse set of actors with different ethnicities and backgrounds and different lighting conditions, in fact, different hair even, and have them act out these meetings so that when we test, we can test against realistic scenarios because no customer is going to give us their meetings and say, hey, uh, here, you can test it against that. So for two and a half years, we have built a pipeline of these actors that have been hired where we create these scripted meetings and we have them sort of go through this and obviously you know you get bad actors versus good actors and things like that you know one time we got this guy who looked like a basketball player trying to act as a cto so it's just those kind of challenges that you have to go through and then you know eventually reach a stable state this is fascinating sir this journey before we switch to tamar and mandar curious to know it seems like you spent a lot of time on the go-to-market here, particularly you know when it comes to figuring out how this product should actually appear when a prospective customer is thinking of it. So within their context, using their particular scenario and such, how important is this for a founder today that is doing a, a startup that leverages some of the AI and machine learning technologies that you referred to? How important in your view, having been there, done that, so to speak. How important do you think it is for founders to focus on that? So I think, Vidya, yours may be a two-part question. One is like sort of where will your AI meet the experience of the customer? Are you meeting them in an experience that they would want to use you rather than, you know, the Google mantra of like, if I build a great product, they will come. You know, that is maybe a recipe for failure 99.9% of the time. I've run two companies myself or three companies myself in the past few years and, you know, sort of painfully learned the experience after a few initial successes. So to me, what makes sense is don't build AI for AI's sake, build AI for, and, you know, I probably call ourselves, and especially around Unifor, is we are a use case first AI company. When we wanted to do conversational intelligence, we didn't want to be like the other players in the space. And we said the use case that we are after is buying is an emotional decision backed by logical decision making to just support your emotional decision. And for people who get into go-to-market functions, they get there because they believe they work very well with people. But, you know, the pandemic changed meeting people. Not just the pandemic. Before the pandemic, a lot of travel was reduced because, you know, Zoom and others were giving you a great experience having, you know, go-to-market conversations over digital medium. So in that now, how do you use your people skills and how do you read the room and how do you establish rapport and are you exercising empathy or are you showing nervousness? You know, all are things that you tend to forget. 
conversational techniques, conversational hygiene, you tend to forget because, you know, you're not meeting people and like chest bumping them and hand fisting them and so on. So that's why that gave us our edge or our tip of the spear that we wanted to use. So I'll go back to saying the same thing that, you know, if you have a great idea around AI as a founder, first talk to between 20 to 25 people who will be potential users of that and hone your idea before you go beyond like demoware. Thank you so much, sir. Lots of gems packed in there. Also noted Unifor's use case first AI company. It seems like that is the way to go, no matter what you do. So maybe moving over to Tamar. Actually, Tamar and Mandar, both of you most recently have adopted large language models, which is all the rage these days, and you have productionized it. So maybe we can go one by one. Tamar, could you maybe take us a bit under the hood? But actually, maybe let's start over the hood. Let's start a bit about what Saurabh was referring to, the customer experience, if you will, in as far as using LLMs in the context of Box. What does that look like? And then we can go from there. Yeah, it's such a fascinating moment because as you were saying earlier, it's it's not like ML or AI is new, and yet something different has happened in the past little under a year, right? Where it's sort of a combination of the technology and the awareness of the technology have sort of reached a point where all of a sudden, we're all thrown into this question of what our AI strategy is for our product, right? So at Box, we deal in content, right? And we want to build the best platform for content in the enterprise. And and we've actually explored over the years, you know, ways in which you can apply machine learning to, for example, audio and video files to extract relevant metadata to then tag the files with to drive business process. Like that's not a new thing, but at some level, it always required a certain amount of setup or, or customization, like you have to train a model for a particular use case. And that's sort of appropriate in certain cases, but it's definitely a point of friction. And I think part of what was exciting for us when we saw this sort of explosion of large language models and, and chat GPT and all of us playing around <laughs> with, with the questions and answers there was like, wait a minute, this is a really interesting general model that's so applicable to content, to text, to documents written and consumed by humans. And so when we look at enterprises, all of us in our businesses, we have structured data in various structured data sources. And we all know that we can kind of slice and dice and query and glean insights from that. But actually like 90% of the content that we have is unstructured, right? It's all of the PowerPoint presentations, all of the Google Docs, all of the PDF files, all of the images and videos, it's, it's all unstructured. And so how do we actually drive that same level of insights business process, productivity out of this tremendous high value sort of knowledge base that we have and seeing as like, that's what lives on our platform. We're like, wow, this is a really interesting moment for us to start exploring all these ideas that we had had in the past, but had never quite been sort of practical enough to actually do. I'll echo Saurabh's use case. You know, it it's not about the technology per se. It's about seeing in what ways it can augment the product and what you're already trying to enable users to do. And so again, for us, looking at those opportunities to be able to unlock insights from the content that our customers already have on Box, whether in a sort of individual productivity angle, or even something I'm personally excited about is, you know, how you can use this to drive business process or kind of scale things in a way that we couldn't do before because they required too many humans in the loop. So 
a lot of interesting ideas that we're pretty excited to be working on. Yeah, I mean, it's mind-blowing how much all these large language models have changed in terms of the art of the possible. Mm -hmm. So your enthusiasm is, is very much shared across the board here. And Maybe, Mandar, to turn to you a little bit, maybe you can tell us a bit about what you've done with especially large language models at DoorDash. Tell us a bit about maybe the most interesting or what you find the most exciting project that you've worked on lately. Absolutely. So generally, the emphasis at DoorDash, DoorDash, by the way, is an extremely customer-obsessed company. And if you talk about ads marketplace, so we have three customers. One of them, of course, DoorDash is a platform and is a customer, but then we also have advertisers who are advertising on DoorDash as a platform. And then, of course, we have our consumers. So some of our bets are strategic. Some of our bets are in exploration phase, but the DoorDash has largely approached this from saying, hey, how can we use these advances? How can we use this technology to add value, to deliver value to our users? So that's been a, a very strong stance. So if you look at some of the touch points that we have across our customers, so one of them is there are some customers even today in today's time right who are ordering on phone so how do we actually provide a stronger value to these customers from the advertising uh, point of view one example uh, let me talk about a very like initiative that we worked on which is on measuring relevance so the measuring relevance is a very manually intensive process right so it usually takes hey look uh, this is a query this is the result then can we have humans go look at it and say, hey, look, is this item relevant to this query, which is a very manually intensive process, can take several weeks for us to get back and evaluation on a reasonably large data set that we can use. Just for clarity, is this a use case for internal purpose, meaning some internal user is querying something against a database and you're trying to evaluate relevance of that? Or is this an external user, you're trying to figure out things like ad placement, recommendations, something like that? Yeah, this is for our users who are coming to the DoorDash as a platform. So, for example, hey, look, DoorDash has two big verticals. One of them is restaurants. So you might come to a restaurant vertical and say, hey, look, you want to buy pizza. Or you might go to our grocery vertical and say, hey, you want to buy healthy uh, healthy drinks. And we will show you vitamin water, coconut water, and so on. So in this use case, while we are building our search, both on our organic content or on our ads content, we want to make sure we, we deliver the best value and show you the relevant content. And as we are building the algorithms behind the scenes, we are using these data sets and we will need some manual evaluation of these data sets. Hey, look, if this query is pizza and we are showing you these particular restaurants, are they relevant mm-hmm. to this query? So this process, as I was saying, takes a significant turnaround time and is also very expensive. So that's an area that we have spent some time on. Can we automate at least part of this process to improve our label space, to improve the quality of the labels? The other is, can we generate data using some of this one-shot learning, can we generate more data that we can use to feed our model? So that's another area that has shown some significant promise for us. That's great. I mean, both of these topics that you mentioned, I mean, especially generating labels and then improving label quality, this is using AI for AI, right? So it's really yeah. fascinating that LLMs have enabled those kinds of use cases directly leading to productivity. Mm-hmm. And the more box and, you know, the kind of content that you host on box these are proprietary. It belongs to other people, your end users, right? So given that it is still early days for large language models, how have you addressed concerns on privacy? I don't know, to the extent that you can talk about, you know, self-hosted versus using off-the-shelf models and or addressing other aspects of security and privacy. It'd be great if we can touch upon that. 
Yeah, that's such a fantastic question. And I feel like for Box in general, like what we have always focused on is building a product that is very usable and practical and valuable, but also realistic within an enterprise context. And, you know, making sure that we actually meet the requirements of businesses for security and access control and compliance and and auditability and, and all of those sort of hard problems, especially when, again, you do that without compromising the customer experience. And so when AI arrived on the scene, it was a big challenge because I think this has been a challenge with the technology, like what data is being used to train what model and do I have control or not? And could we have sort of data leakage situations where I train on a piece of information and then, you know, someone asks the right incantation of a question and we have an issue. So from the get-go, we wanted to be very clear and transparent on what approach we were going to take. We actually published our AI policies for Box that we are going to adhere to for everything that we build. We put that out there for the community and for our customers to be able to refer to. And fundamentally, they're not different from sort of what we were already doing as a company, but again, with an eye towards this particular technology and the questions that people ask. And so making sure that our customers always retain full control of usage of AI within their box account, and they can turn it on or off or turn it on with sort of granular settings for particular users or particular subsets of content. Like I think that that's something that's very important in a business use case to give control to the customer on how something's used. We also have a commitment to privacy and security. We're not going to train on customer data without explicit consent. And in fact, the first use cases that we announced require no training. So they're just using the base models and actually passing through relevant context as a part of the prompt, which you can actually go very far with that approach without needing to do any kind of training or tuning. And so there's no sort of risk on that front. Of course, we're also looking at sort of more advanced use cases in the future where we may want to offer more training or fine tuning options. But again, that would always be done with explicit consent. And in general, everything within our platform always adheres to our sort of normal and expected access controls and permissioning. And then finally, transparency, just making sure that we're very transparent on what we use, how we use it, why to the degree that the technology enables, if you have a customer interaction, being transparent on why did we give this response so that users are better able to evaluate where the answer came from, trying to disambiguate the box to the degree possible. So again, just basically setting that tone on transparency, on customer control, and on adhering to our security and privacy bar, and making sure that we were building this in a way that businesses can actually leverage for their high value content, because I feel like that's where you get the really interesting use cases that actually bring that customer value. That was sort of our big focus from the beginning. That's extremely thoughtful, Tamar. And I have to say, this sounds like the perfect strategy that will help engender trust, which is you know, something that a lot of enterprises are still trying to figure out whether or not they can trust a vendor that is slapping on AI, especially LLMs on their product. A follow-on question, Tamar, that I have is, when I think about, comp- especially you know, companies that I've worked in the past, where we had troves of data sitting around, whether it be Box, Dropbox, Google Drive, I mean, I don't even know if people have a sense of how much they have. It's just you know one of those things that only grows in one direction, right? So you talked about control a fair bit. What about control on cost? As these things go, especially if my understanding is right, Box might automatically leverage LLMs for an end user 
and share some insights and, and all of that good stuff. How are customers to think about the cost that they incur from, yeah. from all this magic? This is such a fascinating topic too, because it's so evolving. So there's sort of two angles to this. There is the business sort of a pricing strategy angle. And if you just look at the market, we already see a lot of different approaches. There are the companies that are giving it away for free as a part of whatever cost they already have. In some cases, you only get it in a particular tier. In some cases, you're paying per usage. In some cases, you're paying a really high price per seat. To enable. So there's, we're already seeing, I think, a lot of different approaches. And it'll be interesting to see over time how this evolves in terms of the standard patterns, the customer expectations around how do you pay for these capabilities and what is a reasonable premium. So I I just see that as a very interesting topic that we are all figuring out together. At the same time, for every one of us, wherever we work, we come up with whatever pricing strategy we come up with. Now we own the infrastructure backing that and you have a real problem here to make sure that your infrastructure costs don't run away from you. I mean, that's always a challenge in general, but I think some of these AI API calls can be very, very expensive per call. And so making sure that we have the right observability into what's going on in the system and the right sort of levers and and kind of ability to control adherence to whatever policy we've set forth so that your sort of system doesn't get away from you, I think is going to be important for any engineering teams that own a platform that provides this capability are going to need to do this so that they can effectively manage their infrastructure costs. But either way, I think that's going to ladder up into a pricing strategy at the product where it's on all of us to deliver value through our product. So ideally, that's something that you can charge through one or another mechanism. But I'm personally curious to see how all of these different approaches play out because we could definitely see a lot of variability right now in the market. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And there's a reason where so many startups are raising hundreds, if not billions of dollars. <laughs> these things are very hungry monsters, yeah. these AI and large language models. Mandar, you have been at the cutting edge of a lot of different things for quite some time. I'm sure DoorDash is using a lot of LLMs for external customer use cases, clearly for internal use cases, data labeling and things like that that you touched upon. As you are evaluating this very, very fast-changing landscape of tools that are becoming available for people who want to take advantage of LLMs, how are you going about figuring things out? Like, you know, you don't want to obviously start with a tool, be it open source or otherwise, and then maybe that gets displaced by something else tomorrow or the day after. How are you really parsing this landscape of tooling for developers within the large language model space? And then how do you pick tools? That's a great question. And there's there's a proliferation of like a lot of tools coming onto this marketplace in, in the last six to eight months. So in terms of our approach to this, or rather my team's approach to this has been very cautious. So we want to invest in in fundamentals. So some of these tools may become obsolete in next six to nine months. Some of these are very exploratory uh, problems, but our goal has been to invest in fundamentals. The first thing for us has been to develop a very strong use case that we can support using this LLM. So for example, conversational AI. Can we build uh, strong conversational bots for our advertisers, for example, so that they can talk to our sales team and get back an answers. For example, our customers, can customers reach out to our customer service department and get back an answer? So once we establish a strong use case, 
we have partnered with some third party companies early on to to be able to power some of these use cases the biggest challenge for us there has been the privacy of the data so for the first few use cases we relied on using data that was already open source so for example anything that is currently available to the public and now as we sort of explore some of the frontiers we are looking into how do we start together putting together our own models and in that we are exploring this space and talking to some young startups on how to make this happen but at this point we we'll continue to explore while internal investments will be on the fundamentals that we need to make happen so for example on the serving side how do we improve serving a lot of this still is is a very dark art there are very few people who who have been uh, at the frontiers of this so how do we improve our serving how do we do gpu serving how do we manage our costs a uh, lot of these gpus are not even available at this point so how do we make sure that we forecast our use cases and plan accordingly so that's been our take on these issues that's very insightful mandar it just occurred to me as vcs it would make sense for us to forecast the use cases that startups are pitching to build products for just so we understand what beyond hiring people it would take to get some of these companies off the ground was there anything else that saurabh mandar or, or tamar you would like to cover i mean obviously there's a spectrum of things we've discussed here today given the kinds of amazing companies that you all are at especially as we think about what wisdom founders can draw from your specific experiences here having built products that use ai and you've deployed it in production and you have users today actively using it what parting wisdom that you want to provide and maybe we can start with you tomorrow i would just say sort of where we started from i think it has to be very focused on your user and delivering value to the user and i actually think that one of the interesting challenges about this latest wave of generative ai is on the one hand it provides a lot of really compelling use cases that kind of mostly work but then anyone who plays around with it a little bit it's like it's so dependent on the data that you use it on the framing of the question the type of model you use there's a wide variability in kind of the answers or the results that you get and so thinking from the beginning if you're going to be releasing a product using this technology to users what are going to be your quality signals because you know that with any product that you release you you have to be able to iterate and change and adapt and especially in a fast paced field like this particular genre of ai you have to be able to iterate and move quickly but then how are you going to assess whether the changes that you're making are good or bad and this has always been sort of you know there's a lot of prior art and developing machine learning models and and evaluating their performance against benchmarks and so forth but in some ways this new technology is so broad that it actually is difficult sometimes in a practical sense to figure out what signals you're going to be using to assess quality in the wild with your actual customers with the product that you're releasing and so i don't know that we have a full answer to this one yet but it's definitely something that we're focusing a lot of effort and thought and experimentation behind basically you're evaluating the quality of different quality evaluation approaches we mentioned ai for ai that's actually one of the things that we're doing is for a proportion of live interactions to actually have a more expensive sophisticated model grade the other one on how well it did and use that as a signal obviously imperfect but thinking about what those signals are going to be from the beginning so that you're giving yourself a foundation to iterate and improve over time i think is very very critical awesome thank you for those words of wisdom tamar wonder do you want to go next words of wisdom for founders who are doing an ai startup today 
So I think the age-old advice of being customer-obsessed and figuring out, hey, look, what is your channel? How are, you going to, how are you going to reach your consumers if it's a B2C startup versus B2B? I think all of those still applies for AI startups. Are very much more important than the AI itself in large majority of the cases. Particularly from the AI point of view, I would encourage founders to look beyond the top 10% of the use case. So for example, companies like DoorDash, we really, really care about uh, the long tail. So we have users who are top, let's say, very high frequent uh, ordering users on DoorDash. But beyond that, what does that experience translate into the rest of our users is extremely critical. So we may not have enough data for these long tail, but how do we still ensure that they get great experience is, is, is very vital to our companies. The second aspect is the field of AI right now is changing so rapidly. So there has to be probably some effort that could be involved in actually educating your customers of what the new AI capabilities are. So I think that that would be my take. Thank you, Mandar. And I think you also touched upon what Saurabh had talked about earlier too, which was, you know, how they talk to a prospective customer, but their very specific context with the whole new product that they were building. So brings it back full circle. Saurabh, did you have anything more that you wanted First to share? First of all, um, you know, I'm a happy customer of both Box and DoorDash. So I wish you all the very best because I will read benefits on the other end. And will be more than happy if you do a quick pro quo and become my customer, of course. But you know, back to the founder, you know, here's my take on this video, having gone through a few bitter experiences on startups myself. And I think Mandar also touched upon that a little bit is, look, if you build AI solution as a founder and your claim to fame is I am more accurate, I am bigger, I am faster, I am more efficient, that is generally going to be a losing proposition because A, the burden of evidence is on you against the top 10, top 11, top 15, pick your, pick your number in the Gen AI and LLM space. So defensible use case is your moat. Do not get into it by saying, I am doing summarization, but I do it better than Google. It's a self-defeating strategy. So find your defensible use case and make a flywheel out of your use case for expansion. And don't get into it with a one-trick pony mindset. So in other words, if you have a defensible use case, make sure you have thought through what expansion flywheel you can ignite with the solution you'll build for your defensible use case using more versions of that AI. Because I think the single-trick pony and or mine is bigger, better, faster, more accurate than yours, those to me are... At best. It's not even that because the burden of evidence is on you and it is a very difficult chasm to cross. So my suggestion to founders has been, will be have a defensible use case, have some expansion use cases in mind, build a solution for one while keeping eye on the other and crawl, walk, run. Awesome, Saurabh. And I have to say, great move, by the way, in trying to sell to both uh, Tamar and Mandar there. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> so maybe in that is, you know, we can leave our founders with yet another tip, which is that always keep hustling and always keep selling. You have to keep doing that as a founder. On that, wanted to end yet another episode of the Enterprise GTM podcast. Thank you so very much for your time and insights. Tamar, Saurabh, Mandar, Tim and I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Enterprise GTM podcast. 
Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on your favorite podcast platform so we can continue to help enterprise founders thrive. Thank you.